Aloha, guys. Welcome to the Vicious Cycle Whiskey, Women, and Water podcast. Today, we've got a really fun interview uh, with a guy who's kind of been there, done it all, and uh, uh, just a really fun, enthusiastic uh, fisherman and uh, named Mike Hennessy. But before we get into that, uh, that podcast, I just want to mention a few things. Uh, first of all, uh, thank you so much again for all your support. Uh, it's greatly appreciated. Uh, if you like the book, you like the podcast, reviews mean a lot to us. Please just give us a like, give us a follow. Um, but particularly if you were read my book and you enjoyed it, please leave a review. A written review on Amazon means a lot to me. It goes a long way to help me get the book in other fishermen's hands and, uh, Helps a lot to keep it relevant. So I appreciate it very, very much. Um, one thing I want to tell you guys about the book, I am running a uh, contest right now, Vicious Cycle Whiskey, Women and Water Sweepstakes. Perhaps some of you guys have seen it. Uh, it's been live for about two days. We are giving away a trip uh, to go fishing on the Northern Lights here in Kona, Hawaii, in a five-night stay at the Kona Coast Resort. Uh, we're going to fly you from the mainland, uh, from North America, uh, we're going to fly you to Hawaii, or if you're in Hawaii, we're going to fly you here for a little staycation, five nights and three days of fishing aboard the legendary Northern Lights with Captain Nakamura and uh, me as your uh, crew. Um, so you can find out how to enter that contest. There's five ways to enter. Everyone is eligible for entering all five ways, so you can enter up to five times. Uh, your fishing buddy you're going to take with you, they are also allowed to enter, so really give yourself ten shots at winning this uh the last time i checked we have 54 prizes to give away uh only one grand prize of the trip but uh 54 prizes including limited edition books uh vicious cycle swag and a special package uh three specialty gift packages for the most creative posting of the vicious cycle book either using the kindle book or the physical book itself so a total of 54 different prizes last time i checked has been live for two days the way it goes right now, uh, but we still have a lot of time to contest. Technically, every person who's entered so far would have won a prize because we don't even have 54 entries yet. So keep those entries coming in. Uh, you can check me out on Kenton Gear for the full set of rules on Facebook, or you can check me out uh, at Vicious Cycle Fishing on Instagram uh, for uh, the photo that you need to post uh, and for rules. So uh, thank you very much. Also, one thing I really wanted to mention, um, you know, how Kevin Nakamura came to be the man that we're doing the trip with, I get lots and lots of messages uh, asking, hey, we're coming to Kona, Hawaii. Who should we go fishing with? Hey, I've got a friend who's coming to Kona. Who should we go fishing with? And um, there are many, many great fishermen out of Kona, unquestionably. I'm friends with lots of them. It gets really hard uh, to tell you who the best fisherman is. But I can tell you this. I consistently kept finding myself telling people Kevin. And uh, that's because he's not just a great marlin fisherman or a great tuna fisherman or, uh, you know, great Mai Mai or Ono fisherman. It's because he's a great all-around fisherman. Um, I fish with Kevin, and I got to say, a big part of who I fish with has to do with energy or mojo. When I'm on a boat, and particularly if I'm putting up my own money because I charter boats in other places, I want to feel that I'm fishing with someone who's, you know, uh, into it, uh, who wants to be there, uh, 
And that's the way I've always felt with Kevin. And I'm sure you're going to feel that way too. And that's ultimately why I decided um, to work with Kevin for the grand prize package because, you know, whoever wins this, who knows where you are. Uh, you, you may have never been marlin fishing before. Uh, you may be a very experienced marlin fisherman. But regardless of where you are in your fishing career, uh, there's something to learn and something to respect uh, out of Kevin Nakamura. Anyone who's been around knows that he is a, uh, a fisherman that's got the runs on the boards. He's done it all and uh, just a great all-around fisherman, all great around, great experience. Uh, whoever wins this package is going to be very, very happy. Um, I mean, just beautiful boat, fantastic captain, and uh, you get to go fishing with yours truly, which may be the downside of it, but uh, the rest of the package is pretty good. So, uh, Two out of three is not bad. So huge shout out to Northern Lights uh, for being our official sponsor and uh, just for Kevin being a great guy. So uh, thank you very much uh, for everyone that's been supporting us. Good luck. I hope uh, I hope to see you uh, posting. Uh, look forward to seeing the uh, Vicious Cycle logo out there uh, on your page. I'm um, also looking forward to seeing the book. Again, Thank you so much, and best of luck, uh, whoever wins. You very well may be listening. Uh, most likely will be one of our listeners, definitely will be one of our followers. So uh, best of luck, and let's get into this podcast. All right. Hey, you got me? Hey, how's it going? Good. Let me uh, – I'm going to run really quick and shut the door because I can hear the waves breaking outside, or you think it's okay? I don't hear the waves breaking. That probably is nice ambiance. It is. It's nice. There's a little four-foot swell coming through lefts right now, but it's kind of, you mentioned it might get loud, but if you don't hear it, I'm going to keep hearing it and think about getting barreled in a little bit. Well, even better. We're just going to start the show with exactly that. Mike, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, first of all, welcome to the show, but why don't you introduce yourself and why don't you tell us where you're at, where you've got that wave? Yeah, so, um, yeah, Mike Hennessy here. Uh I'm fishing all over the place, kind of like what you have, but right now I'm on Namotu Island in Fiji, which is um, off the main island about six, seven miles, just a little sandbar sitting in the middle of the ocean, and and um, waves break on the front. We got a right on one side that's called swimming pools, and we got a left right in front that's called Namotu Lefts, and of course the world famous cloud break, and um, Tabarua Island is just about a mile from us. And um, the fishing also is insane, and that's kind of one of the main reasons I luckily got invited to come manage this place and also kind of direct the fishing, um, you know, department and get the boats all rigged up and figure out the fisheries because really it's all kind of new and exciting down here for as far as the fishing goes. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? How did, how did that adventure come to be? How did you find yourself managing that place? Oh, man, that's a long story in itself, but I was fishing the Bisbee's tournament down in Mexico, you know, the Bisbee's black and blue and the Los Cabos and all the big Marlin tournaments. And um, one of my investors um, fell out of the team and my deckhands from Australia said, hey, Mike, I know this guy that, you know, has a little island in Fiji and he might want to be on our fishing team. I'm like, well, that sounds good. And I'd actually been down here and walked on the sandbar back in 89, but that's a whole nother story. But so he came down and um, he's like, wow, this is great. And we ended up winning the Bisbee's black and blue in uh, 2010. 
And um, so that was really fun. And a couple other, the Los Cabos, we also won, which also is another story. But he got so excited coming from Fiji and seeing the fishery in Mexico. And he's like, wow, Mike, if you could come to Fiji and you know show us some of these techniques there, maybe something will happen in Fiji for you. And next one thing led to another. And here I am in a different country in the far side of the world. Unreal. Uh, you know, Mike, one thing I want to point out about a podcast, and of course it has to do with your time, uh, where you keep alluding, that's a whole nother story. The beauty of podcasting is that most of the people that are listening to this listen in parts. We've got nothing but time. Our following is pretty hardcore, loves hearing any kind of fishing story, detail you want to give. You would be amazed uh, that the loyalty of this podcast already, like it is insane how fast people are just snapping up any fish story they can get people want to hear it so don't be shy don't worry <laughs> about the details people love it man yeah well some of them you know get kind of r-rated so you know we have to maybe be a little careful but um yeah. <laughs> not on this podcast <laughs> Yeah, well, um, we'll have to talk about that off air first and then uh, get into it. But no, but Fiji's insane and I'm really stoked to be here. The neat thing about, um, you know, if, well, I'm, that's how I kind of know you is is through the Hawaii thing and, and Dave Weaver and all that. And But from Hawaii, um, you know, I was doing the Marlin fishing there as well, which is gosh that's an amazing fishery and you've taken it to a different level there well a lot of the i think the beauty of what you and i have done is fished all over the place so you can kind of take snippets of all your different fishing techniques and stuff you've learned from you know different countries and different captains and different styles of fishing so when i got to fiji i was able to you know learn and, and grow and and figure out I had no idea, and most people had no idea what was going on here. And I still feel like we only have maybe touched 50% of the fishery um, and what's available because there's like, I don't, I don't know, 20 or 30 different types of fishing you can do here, and we're discovering new ones all the time. And, of course, there's trolling for marlin. Um, we're doing a lot of deep drop for the snappers and the groupers which you guys call a Naga, Pakapaka, and Hapapu, and all that. We have the same thing, but they kind of come in larger sizes here, so it's pretty fun. It's like fishing for dinosaurs of all that kind of stuff. Is, is that just because all that stuff has just been completely untapped? Like, there's just been no pressure on it? That Yeah, I mean, it definitely could be that, or maybe they're slightly different subspecies and they just get bigger. I mean, until someone comes down here and takes a DNA sample, I guess we'd never know, but they sh we start off doing like four or five hooks on the deep drop rigs, but the fish were getting too big and they would snap each other off and we were losing weights and we can't get weights here so we're welding them at a rebar and you know just doing whatever we can do it's pretty classic but we're just dropping two hooks now because some of these things are up to 60 pounds and they uh they actually take line at 1200 feet they start taking line they'll like smoke you it's crazy wow really fun good time that sounds awesome so 
why don't you tell us a little bit about the the, the fleet of boats you got there and, and, and what you're doing uh, with people that you're bringing down there? Because this is all very exciting. Yeah, well, Fiji, especially Namotu Island and Tavaru Island, basically started off as surfing destinations, and they still are. Um, the waves are insane here, super fun. It is reef break, so you can and that, but that's part of part of the fun of it. I mean, it's kind of the same in Hawaii. But um, what we kind of evolved in once uh, myself and uh, my buddy Ben started getting the management going here is that how we can make it into not just fishing, but also, I mean, to surf surfing, but also into fishing. So maybe there's a few fishing guests here as well as surfing guests, and there's less people in the lineup, and there's people out catching tunas and snapper, and we're eating fresh fish. And so that kind of evolved, and we had a we had one fishing boat here, which was like a basically a 28 foot Mexican ponga with twin 60s on it, and that's kind of gone. And now we have two of those with 90s on it, and they're pretty cool. It's, you've got to have two engines here because there's basically no navy, and no one's coming to get you. So all of our boats have two engines. So you know wherever you are, you're coming home, and. Now we have a 32-foot world cat that is an absolute weapon, and that's kind of to do more of the offshore um, charters for marlin and sailfish and big yellow tuna, my, my. And, and also you can do some, you know, a little bit even longer-range stuff going to, you know, outer, outer atolls and, and that kind of thing. So it's neat. So basically we have three fishing boats and um, a lot of popping. We have a... a very open with a rail around it kind of ponga with no t-top and no canopy nothing and that one's just for throwing poppers which is really neat you get up inside the waves you're throwing big poppers and stick baits for gts and everything surface action and it's pretty nuts you get broken off a lot because they go in the coral but so you have surface fisheries i mean there's so much stuff it's really just like every day basically what you do is you you kind of look outside and you decide let's go fishing. So what's the wind? And then the wind depicts if you can go offshore or inshore or deep drop. And so basically we just do what nature tells us to do. And there's that many, you know, different things to fish for that you're never really stuck, you know, by weather of not fishing. You just change it up. Awesome. And, you were talking about GTs. You got any big ones there? Yeah, there's actually some really scary ones here. And and what we found, too, is a lot of the really big ones, like the 100-plus pounders um, that, you know, is like the mythical beast in Hawaii that all those guys that fish off the cliffs and the rocks in Hawaii, we're catching those um, a lot of times really deep. Uh, we'll be deep jigging with the big metal jigs in 300 400 feet of water trying to get the um you know the iron jaw snappers and these hundred pound gts and it's like hooking a freight train and they are ugly they come up they got big scars in them and they're like growling at you they're nasty but i would say most of the time the stick baits and the popper fish um you get them on the big tides when the water's kind of really swirling and upwelling and they're average being i don't know 15 to 60 pounders and those are catchable a lot of times you get one any bigger they you know they take you through the rock structures and break you off but it's still fun to hook them i mean it looks like a 
It looks like a depth charge when they come up. And then they just, I mean, we're using 80 pounds. And you can't them. They just kick your ass. Epic. Epic, man. Yeah, it's good stuff. And there's also long nose emperors. There's the narrow barred Spanish mackerels. And they'll eat your stick baits and your poppers when you're throwing for GTs. And there's nothing too shallow nor too drop off you can throw up in three feet of water and still get a 60 80 pound gt or a spanish mackerel or a long nose emperor you really don't know what's gonna hit and um you know you just gotta kind of take some risks sometime and go shallow and the shallower the bite is the more explosive it is so it's pretty fun just to take chances but you go through a lot of gear so when you come make sure you bring a lot of stuff <laughs> that's a uh, that's a good recommendation uh so let me ask you something. So you just brought that. So when people come on trips with you, um, that's a big part of it is that they need to bring their own outfits for that type of stuff. Is that correct? Or do you provide that kind of stuff or a little bit of both? Yeah, well, on the charters, we have full setups. Um, if you just come to the island as a surf and fisherman, one boat's just fit. You can fish for free all the time as much as you want. It's one of the 28-footers with the twin 90s on it. And that one, we just kind of have... I would recommend bringing like, you know, one or two good, um, like 1800 Stellas with 80 pound and, a, you know, a good, you know, action, uh, heavy action spinning rod because you are going to blow stuff up. And with GTs, um, it's too hard to let people use the, the island stuff because everything gets snapped and broken and people are throwing the rods overboard. So if you're coming to fish GTs, just definitely bring your own stuff. But we do have gear for everyone as well for, you know, fishing locally, live baiting and, and jigging and that kind of stuff. But the popper stuff, you just, you know, it's, it's a disaster. It's just too, you got to be into it. Yeah. I, I, I have had that kind of experience on the great barrier reef too. Like we do these popping charters and it would be basically just rigging stuff all day. It would just be pure devastation from being broken off on the reef, like one fish after another. Yeah, you, you get good at tying FG knots, and then you get lazy and just start tying double unis or whatever. But if you can take the time and do the FG, I still think that's the best knot. Um, in fact, there's a really good thing that came out yesterday. This guy, iFish TV, he did a show with us not too long ago. Uh, he's on Instagram, iFish TV. And he did a thing where he weighed, uh, put water in buckets with the IGFA scale and did all the knots from braid to um fluorocarbon or mono i don't remember which but to leader and um the fg you know was definitely 30 percent stronger which it takes longer but man when you're putting 40 i mean you're putting so much pressure literally you can't pull it off with your hand but they still take it you got to have everything perfect because everything just blows up you know it's crazy so yeah so a lot of poppers a lot of stick baits a lot of changing the hooks to heavier hooks um I think is a really big one and you learn quick, you know, what something is going to fail. And as I'm sure as you see in the commercial fisher, you're probably still changing stuff all the time. You're like, I just hate losing fish. Right. Oh, totally. Uh, speaking of which, which has been a huge topic on this podcast, what's the shark situation like down there? Well, you know, it's it's this very strange thing. So there's been more sharks than ever before, which I hear globally. Um, 
Is it because, you know, I don't know how far you want to go down that path too, but my personal feeling is it like there's the year of the, the land crabs and there's the year of the flying fish and there's the year of the tuna, like the bluefin in California. There's the years of the mahi-mahi. I think it's a cyclical thing where the last year and this year, even three years ago, there's just been a big the temperature or whatever it is, I think it's just lined up for sharks right now. And there's a lot of them and they're everywhere. And I think it'll go back to normal again. I just think that's just how cycles go. And to me, that's what's going on. But there's a lot of them here, but they seem to have left with the tuna migration. We have the tuna migration starts in November and goes through till about, well, it just ended couple weeks ago about april 15th they move on and head to hawaii and that's why the guys start catching the ahis there around then and our our tuna fishery is insane because it's just these little small black sardines that get these big bait balls in the currents and it's all surface action we don't even troll we just high speed run to bait ball to bait ball looking through our gyros it's all sight fishing and it's just throwing poppers and stick baits and jigs and the fish are maybe a little smaller than Hawaii. They usually average between 40 and 150 pounds, but it's all sight fish. Conventional casting, so it's very cool. But the problem with that, there's so much food and so much tuna. There's also a million sharks. Uh, yeah. you'll, have, you'll have to leave piles just because you can't, you can't catch when you hook a tuna. The tuna will actually start jumping and there's 10 sharks eating its head off you know and so that gets frustrating but then you'll find a pile with no sharks and you just got to move around and adjust to it you know that's very similar to what i do there's there's you know good piles and bad piles and there's piles that are unfishable because the sharks are so bad and then you just got to go find another pile and yeah that's very similar to what we do commercially too you know just sometimes the the sharks just win so you just got to move the next pile and find one where it's you can get past them or one that's biting well you know how it is i'm sure you've seen it too you can find big piles that aren't biting and then some that are biting are too sharked up so you got to leave those too and yeah we've also found because you know our island's out kind of in the middle of the ocean anyways but you'll find more of the smaller tunas close to the drop off i mean it's three thousand feet not even you know 500 yards off the island it's like the fish are right here i actually look from my room having a coffee i can look in my gyros and spot the tuna piles it's crazy but those piles have more sharks because it sucks the sharks off the reefs. Mm. Uh, and you get, you get Galapagos and Silkies and, and white tips and that kind of thing. But if you get to the outer schools, you know, out on the thousand meter line or, I mean, the thousand fathom line, those schools usually have less. Maybe there's some bigger ones like some big makos, but they might only take one of your fish and then you're good the rest of the day. And those tunas will usually be bigger. And it seems to me the tuna's over 80 pounds. The sharks usually leave them alone. It's just the 30-pounders get smoked, right? I mean, you see the same thing? No, not really, unfortunately. What I see is just depending on pile to pile, They, it just depends on how many sharks are there. I, I, you know, like I've definitely had no – I've definitely had 100-pounders. Fuck, I've had 200-pounders get eaten before, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, like – That um, sucks. Oh, it's heartbreaking. You know, and then sometimes we'll get ones that are sharks where it, it's it, it may only be a bullshit bite, but it was right in the main loin. So the whole fish is a, a throwaway. You know, that that's the heartbreaking one is sometimes 
they normally take the belly out and we can still even sell them if they just like a one bite in the belly. But if they yeah. bite you squarely in the loin, I mean, it's we'll over. Fill- yeah, it's done. We'll fillet that fish. We'll fillet that fish to give away, but we can't sell it. Yeah, it makes the neighbors happy though, right? It does make the neighbors happy. Although, honestly, it's kind of a funny neighborhood I live in. They have asked me to stop giving them fish. So Yeah, I know. Uh, you overload on the tuna. Well, our tuna season's so long here that literally after about November, December, January, no one can eat tuna anymore. I mean, you can you can only eat so much pokey, only eat so much sushi. You can't barbecue. The only thing you can do is smoke it and freeze it because, you know, it's uh, you got to change the species up or you're going nuts. But luckily, I mean, if you're a commercial guy, your stuff's going all over to all the restaurants, so you're not getting too sick of it. But I mean, you can't eat it anymore, right? Um, I eat ahi probably. I mean, in all honesty, I I probably eat it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I probably eat it four or five times a month. I mean, I, I, I do love it, but I can't eat it every day. I know people that come on vacation and eat it every day. I, just, I can't do that at this point. No, um, I can't either. <laughs> but yeah. it's amazing. And when I and you make yourself wait and not eat it, then you're like, wow, this is amazing. But then you got to, like, take a break. But anyways, it's super. It's just cool to be able to live in a um, – you know basically make your menu and go out and catch your menu. Like let's, let's go get snapper and, and um, you know, make fish fingers or let's go make sushi and pokey. Let's go grab a tuna. It's, it's just kind of that kind of deal. It's pretty magical. Any mong chong down there. That's a fish I enjoy eating that I still eat on a regular basis. Any chongs down there? We, we do get them occasionally when we're deep dropping in like, um, you know, 1200 to 1500 feet. Um, it's hard for me because everyone here uses meters, not fathoms, and then feet. It's like when you're down here, you get all mixed up on measurements. But um, it's like 1,200 feet is where we're dropping on these ledges, and you'll get stopped usually at about 900 feet on the way down, it seems like. You'll be going full speed with an eight-pound weight, and it'll go, dunk, dunk, dunk. It'll just go like, what is going on? I'm not even there yet. You'll lock it up, and you'll catch two or three they actually are such a crazy fish because they're the only ones that aren't affected, it seems, by pressure change. So they'll actually fight the whole time all the way to the top and, like, take line. And they're they're just angry fish. It's pretty cool, and they're great eating. But I, I wouldn't say that – I could say, Kent, let's go out and target a monchong right now. I, I don't know how to do that yet. Um, we're going to try some suspended baits and maybe even try sword fishing here soon. But – um, you know, the snapper are just so good eating, it's hard not just to go for them and then catch the monchong as bycatch. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's funny because I actually put a lot of effort into targeting monchong for a long time. And um, it's exactly kind of what you were saying. They're they're mesopelagic species, right? So they're not a lot of people catch them bottom fishing like by accident because there'll be some suspended, but they actually spend most of their life in 180 to 220 fathoms. So they, you know, they travel all over the world's oceans, like in that middle depth. And right. if you find them, um, their schools, they actually can be in massive schools. And if you find them, their schools, like at 180 to 200 fathoms, their schools look like giant Christmas trees. You kind of think like they've got like a, you, you'll, you'll see it. Like you kind of think like, oh, that's a bait ball, but it's like way too hard. Like the, right. their, their schools look like giant Christmas trees. And if you can kind of figure out what direction the school's going, that's how you can stay in them. 
Wow. Yeah. I, I can't say that I've even marked them or remember marking them. I just, they seem to be in these different zones because there's, you know, upwelling and ledges and maybe I just need to pay more attention, but um, yeah, I haven't really said I'm going to go try to catch or meter a monchong yet, but I heard it's possible, like you're saying, so I'm going to try it. Yeah, yeah, they look like a big Christmas tree. I put a lot of, the other thing too, it's a little bit different there, but you know, one thing I've discovered around Hawaii is anywhere where you see, I'm giving away all these tips here, not that it's that big of a deal, anywhere like a koa where you, or like anywhere where you see like uh, aku piles or bait piles on a regular basis, at least out in Hawaii, if you right. get outside of that, like in that 180 to 200 fathoms, I always right. find Mong Chong and that kind of stuff. Any, uh, yeah. For what that's worth, you know, like if you if you have any spot that's like always holding bait. Yeah, no, that I mean, they'd have to go there, right? I mean, even if they're just traveling through, they might stop there because those the other fish are pushing bait, um, you know, either down or it's falling down after it's been squished. And so it's a perfect target area for them. I mean, basically, you just have to, you know, think like a fish. And, and I think what makes you a good fisherman, hopefully, if you become a good fisherman is you're not looking at the ocean as a two-dimensional flat thing. You're, you're looking at it at three dimensions. So you're actually picturing what it is underwater and where the fish would be suspended and then how your, your presentation of those fish, you make it there. Right. So you have to like, you know, you're almost making a visual scene of what's going on below you besides your depth sounder, but you got to have it in your head. I think, don't you agree? I agree. I think, I think the best fisherman I've ever met, uh, envisioned the whole thing from the whole food chain up to right to the structure that the fish are actually living in. That That's my experience is that when you start the, so, so, some of the guys where I've had takeaways where I'm like, wow, this guy really, really has it figured out. Or I really like the way the guy, this guy thinks about fishing. They don't think of fishing as just like you said, like a one dimensional or two dimensional thing. They're thinking about the rock all the way back to the coastline that leads into the ledge. If that's, you know, right. And then how the water would flow off that and, and why the fish would get stuck there when they do, because you'll, even if you kind of feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, you always kind of get bit in the same area and Wahoo especially are the weirdest ones, you know, Ono's in Hawaii, you know, you'll be going down a ledge and it's like that on the penguin banks and I'm sure on, on, in Kona and everywhere. And even if there isn't that much of a structure change or a ledge drop or something, You'll get, you can almost call the bite on where the Wahoo or the Ono should be because something in nature is telling them to be there. And um, sometimes visualizing why he's there helps you find new places. And so, you know, you'll you, literally, if your GPS mark, like where you got bit last week, you're probably going to get catch another one within five feet of that spot, right? Very true. Onos are definitely a giveaway. And actually, back to the Mong Chong again. I've found that to be very true, even though they're, you know, pelagic species moving through. Uh, once you kind of figure out why Mong Chong are in a spot, they're there over and over again, even though they're just passing through in theory, you know? Right. So, something's going to hold them there longer than they would somewhere else and everything's percentages. So you just kind of base it on that. And, but it's good fun. And like I said, we're learning new fisheries here all the time. You know, we've heard that the longliners catch swordfish here. Um, I'm a little worried about the sharks and stuff, but I think everyone has that same problem. So you just go for it and 
maybe you get bit off, maybe you get a big eye thresher, but when you do get the swordfish, that's that's like a lifetime thing. So you just got to put some time in. Yeah, I think once you get it dialed in, I mean, we were having this conversation a little bit before the call that, you know, that's something I've been playing with again recently. Um, uh, you know, for me, it's at the point where I'm getting semi-successful at it in Hawaii, where around the sea mountains, I'm getting bit, not every day, but if, you know, if I do it multiple times in a week, I'll catch one every week. Um, yeah. But I'm still not at the point where it's more economically efficient than tuna fishing. And so that's why I'm not really putting uh, full guns blazing into it. But I have yeah. gotten to the point where I'm making a little bit of money at it. So that's, you know, from a commercial standpoint, that's a good thing. Speaking you know? of commercial fishing, how's your hand doing? That that uh, <laughs> that was a scary little program. I, I saw that first post. I'm like, oh, my gosh, is he going to die? What's going on? This guy's my bro. And I was freaking out. And then uh, then I saw the picture. I go, at least it's just his hand. He's a tough guy. Yeah, so I, my hand's not still you, – you'll appreciate this story. Uh, so my hand's still not 100%. But – Going into my so I've done two trips since, and people are like, I can't believe you went out fishing already. And it's as you probably know as a fisherman, and like it's not I don't have the option not to go fishing. People are like, oh, I can't believe you're not fishing. I'm like, uh, like you know, I'm like, well, if I don't go fishing, the boat doesn't go fishing. If I don't, if the boat doesn't go fishing, nobody that works for me makes a living, and everyone that depends on me. So I really don't have an option. So like, right, my fr first trip back, I went, and it was super super frustrating i was just like the bus driver and i'm so used to being in there and it was a, a a mediocre trip honestly like we just scraped up a check and the frustrating part was a lot of times in commercial fishing it's all that a little bit of additional fish that makes your profit once you get past expenses and i know like just from doing it over years if i had been jigging every stop with the boys you know would have been another extra thousand pounds and a thousand pounds would have been you know basically our profit right right so the next trip where we went out and I went out to buoy three, which is uh, 272 miles off of Kona. It's 211 miles from Honolulu. We get there and that's basically a strikeout. I rolled the dice on that and we caught like a hundred pounds of Onos and nothing great. So then we have to drive the whole day back. And now, so now we're like four days into my second trip and I've got a hundred pounds on the boat. Oh no! Yeah. And so I'm like, Oh, I'm like, and as you can imagine, like my hand is still bothering me. I actually went to the uh, doctor uh, the day before I left on that trip, and I'm still suffering from severe nerve damage. I couldn't feel the back of my hands and my uh, pinky and my index finger had no feeling. And, and, and my pinky uh, just hurt at the end. It just felt like it was somewhere between asleep or on fire all the time. Well, anyways, Good. now we're five days into this trip. And we threw some gear and I couldn't take it anymore. I'm like, I don't care. I, I, I have to, I have to fish. Like I just can't take it anymore. So I put on my rain gear and my hand's still kind of like a claw and I go to haul gear. And it's the first time we're hauling short line gear. And it's the first time I've hauled gear uh, or anything since the, uh, that, since the accident. And right. um, we, we get, we're about halfway through this one mile piece and my hand starts burning and I haven't had any feeling in my hand now for almost a month right so my hand's burning and i'm just thinking what the fuck now you know what i mean <laughs> and i pull off my glove and there's a jellyfish there's a box jellyfish that had fallen off the line 
and it was stuck on the back of my hand. And it was like <laughs> I, I, I pulled it off, threw it off, and I, without even realizing it, I started wiggling my hand. And I'm like, son of a bitch. Well, long story short, about 10 minutes after that jellyfish that I took it off, I've got almost like 90, 95% of my mobility back after that jellyfish. It's like, I know that's, it's like the bee sting cure, jellyfish cure. It's amazing. You just, just you're, you're going to be a millionaire for that one. Uh, well, I, I actually told my buddy Tiny, he goes, oh, you shouldn't share that with anyone. But let's be honest. I'm just going to be a fisherman, you know, like, uh, but I thought <laughs> I, it was kind of like that medicine man movie. I thought like, here we go. I, inci- I accidentally discovered a cure for like nerve damage with a jellyfish that went down my glove. But yeah, honest to God, man, I got like, 90 or 95% of all that nerve damage recovered after a jellyfish got stuck in my glove. You might need to put one down your pants. Well, dude, that's what I actually told Tiny. I said, the, uh, <laughs> he, he goes, you can make millions with that. I said, unless it gives you a heart on, I won't be making any money. You know? Like, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, I'm glad your hand's doing better. So end of the story, did you catch a fish or did you guys suck it? Oh, oh yeah. So the, uh, the story is, yeah, we ended up, yeah, I ended up, uh, Long story short, yeah, I caught ten thousand pounds. My, uh, the uh, we did we did just fine. It was we had like two more slow days there, and then I caught sixty five hundred pounds in the last twelve hours for a walk off home run. That that was the more that it ended well. That's awesome. So, are your fish? I just pack that much ice. It stays good and whatever. Yeah, I I leave. I bring about twenty six thousand pounds of ice with me on every trip. Wow, that's yeah. that's cool. That's amazing. Yeah, your boat looks insane, and uh, that's that'd be super fun. Can I, um, technical question? Yes. When yeah. You're marking, when you're marking those tunas and stuff and whatever monchongs, what yep. size transducer do you have on your boat? Is it like a three kilowatt or two or five or what do you got going? Oh, you would ask me that. I have got a big Airmar transducer, which has been worth every dollar. Um, Oh God! Look, look up what power it is, because I'm I got the one kilowatt, and I mark stuff pretty good. I mean, I'm only on a 26 foot, you know, center console, but I want to be able to, you know, I want to see them smiling down there. And right now, I just see a little fuzz and whatever, and I can tell if it's hard bottom or or mud or sand or whatever. It, you know, it it quite deep, but I just want a little more, and you know. Talking to the commercial guys, that's where you kind of figure it out. But that thing was probably in there a while. But check it out. Let me know. Yeah, I, God, I almost want to say it's five kilowatts. That sound right? Like a five thousand dollar transducer. It's, yeah, and when you jump over the side, it like goes thong and like puts your ears. Say it again. Have you jumped in the water when it's on and you can hear it clicking? Oh yeah, you can hear it clicking away. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So I, that's, you know, that's all fun stuff to think about. Um, but I'm glad your hands back, man. That that always scary and nerve damage sucks. But you know, maybe a jellyfish once a week, you'll be back 100. percent Yeah. Well, the funny part is, I've actually gone like so. I still got like a little. Now this sounds ridiculous, but I've actually was hoping I hauled gear and I hadn't had any other jellyfish since. I was kind of. I actually wanted to try sticking one back on my hand to see if I could clear up the last little bit, but. <laughs> that's awesome well i gotta get you down here to fiji um you know it's fun to have different people you know think of the fishery different ways and sometimes you try you know bigger hooks smaller hooks longer leaders different color leaders 
um, go oh, lighter, go heavier. It's just so fun. Like with guys like you to have, and I get like guest fishermen down to come play with me down here every couple of weeks when, when it's open, but Fiji's not open right now. Cause we're still dealing with the COVID problem. Um, and f- we actually, you're just getting people vaccinated down here now. So, you know, the future's looking brighter. I know Hawaii is kind of back on its feet, but we're still, you know, we're still half a, half a year behind, I think, but when it opens up, I'm going to get you down here and oh. we'll go uh, smash them. Absolutely. I'd love to. Um, I'm not going to let you off the hook that, that easily though. I got a few questions for you. One of them actually, uh, you were just talking about line. Okay. Yeah. And I like to ask people this. I don't always get to, but uh, you have a preference on uh, color and is fluorocarbon worth the money? Fluorocarbon is 1000% worth the money if it's used in the proper way. Right. So Obviously, it's called fluorocarbon leader because you only want to use it for leader. It doesn't stack on a reel for line. So, but it has its purpose. Like, so fluorocarbon sinks and monofilament kind of neutral floats. So, also, it depends what you want your bait or your lure or your fly to be doing. So, some, like, let's say you're trout fishing in a stream and you're fishing a dry fly, you'd most of the time want to use a monofilament because it floats on the top with your your dry fly. And if you're using nymphs, you might want to have it sinking. So that's fluorocarbon, but also the fluorocarbon, if you know anything about it, has properties in water or very close to it. So theoretically it is less visible, but what people don't realize is you also get light um, reflecting off of different things. So where your knots are and stuff also gives you away. So you can have like the best leader ever, but if you're tying big fat knots in the wrong place, it doesn't matter what you're using for a leader. They're going to see it. So there's, there's just still a million factors just because it's called fluorocarbon. It isn't a, you know, an end all answer to everything, but it's definitely worth it. And it's, I think a little bit more abrasion resistant. So when we're throwing it, um, you know, snappers, shallow water, and, and toothy critters. Sometimes fluorocarbon, you can survive a little bit more abuse. Um, one thing to think about, though, with fluorocarbon, it doesn't tie as good to a FG knot as monofilament does. Mono better. So most of our GT hardcore guys will use um, 150 mono instead of 150 fluoro because the fluoro can slip because it's harder. So it doesn't grab on the braid doesn't grab onto it as good. But if you can be using fluorocarbon on a leader standpoint for bait, I think is the, or flies. Um, I would, don't think I would ever use it for trolling for Marlin. Well, Marlon, you need to, you need to, I mean, how technical do you want to get, right? I can go and do 10,000 different crazy things, but Marlon fishing, you want a little bit of stretch. So you want monofilament. It stretches, fluorocarbon doesn't stretch. It's more like braid kind of thing. And Marlon fishing, you want stretch. So because they're going so ape shit crazy, you need things to, you know, give a little bit. And, I, and to change topics really quick, I think that's why so many people lose Marlon in Hawaii. There's, Rods and there's no flex give where if you have a tip that's looser you're going to keep the jumps and the reverb line flexes out of their line and you're going to keep more fish on and um i kind of tried to change that when i was in Hawaii, and i found it really made a big difference having 
the top third a little bit softer. And, um, but again, I mean, you want to go down the rabbit hole? Oh, this place is made for rabbit holes. <laughs> exactly. But I'd say fluorocarbon's worth the money if you know the application for your fishery and you just have to play with it, you know, and, and then figure out also like what is the ratio of the fish biting a lot to the heaviest you can go or how light you got to go and when do you change it during the day on cloudy days maybe you get away with a little more on sunny days midday you got to go down until you start breaking them off and then you got to creep back you know 20 pound or 40 pound or whatever you got to do but i think you have to have a lot of options and play with it and not stick if they're not biting 80 pound don't stick with it try 40 pound and break one off and then you can go move it up to 60 pound you know play with it a lot because you wouldn't believe how many fish are actually checking out your bait and your lures and your hook rigs and whatever you got that don't bite it's like, i guarantee you it's 100 times more than everyone thinks because you're not down there looking at them because i see it all the time fly fishing i'll, I'll, I'll see a trigger fish or a gt or something i'll throw at them and they come over and look at it and, and not eat it. And I'm like, well, I think I did that pretty damn perfect. Switch down to 12 pound from 20 pound and every one of them bites after that and you break them off. But heck, it's better to get the bite and have a chance of catching that fish than it is to watch them and not catch anything, not eat your bait, right? Do you, do you have to play that kind of thing even with your commercial fishing? around? Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Especially when we're working. Look, sometimes I'm working piles that are 80 or 100 tons and I can't get a bite out of them. I know that there's some lookers. Now, what it is to get it to bite can be, I, I find that, so kind of what you were saying, um, I always start heaviest and then work my way down. I never go the other direction. I never go lightest and work my way back because you just don't get it back. If right. that makes sense. I always yeah. start heaviest and then I go down and then, but one thing that does happen in commercial fishing, we'll get to a point where light is too light, where I have to make the decision. Okay. Now we're getting so light in reality, it would be better for us to find a pile that wants to cooperate. And that's, that, that's what happens to me. I'll get to a point where I'm like, yeah, I could catch one right now on a King King, but I'm better off finding a pile that wants to participate. That's kind of what happens to me, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, also, and what I've found a lot, especially with our big, when the bigger tuna schools come here with the bigger fish, if you lose one, it seems like he pulls the school down and you're toast. But if you catch them and catch them and catch them, they keep chewing and they, they think their buddy's going to heaven or something. And they think, hey, I want, <laughs> I want in on this party. But if you break one off, for being a little bit silly or whatever you blow it it seems like you're everything just gets harder i 100 percent agree especially so we fish mixed schools a lot so ranging from small fish to you know jumbos and the thing that i have experienced over time and i talk about this a lot is that on some level there's a hierarchy in the school and the larger of the fish the more um the more control it has as the happenings of the pile. So like what I mean by that is if you break off a big fish, there go the big fish. Like it gets very hard to catch a big one. You can lose little fish and not lose the big ones. But as soon as you lose a big one, 
then you lose the big fish's interest. I've noticed that the, right. more, the larger fish are more dominant. And so if you lose big ones, that's the worst thing that can happen in that scenario because the big ones go down with the one you broke off. Yeah, totally. I see that so much. And, you know, everything is, is you know, that we do is pattern related. So you just have to start seeing patterns and maybe it takes you a few times to go, wow, that's actually a pattern right there. And, you know, when you do something once, maybe it's hard to see that, but you got to start thinking, man, that may be how it is all the time, you know, and that's just part of how you kind of grow and, and uh, become a better fisherman. And for you, it's more critical because you're selling it. Me, I usually don't really care too much, but I, we all have it, you know, in us that you still want to catch fish. You have to sell them. I don't really care. I'm eating them and letting them go and take, you know, there's really not that much pressure, but in the end, you still want to catch them all, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. You still want to, you still, still want to get as many as you can, even if you're letting them go. But you know what I've learned over the years too, is some of those scenarios are the best case scenarios for learning what your tackle can and can't do. Because when you're not, when you're fearless of breaking one off, like let's say you already have, you know, like, you know, you already got four or five big augies in the boat. You, there's no, you've got nothing to lose with seeing what your tackle can max out and what, you know what I mean? Like sometimes those are great proving and learning grounds, really learning what you can and can't do with tackle when you're in that situation. And then you can carry that over to moments when you, it really is crucial. Yeah. I mean, you can, and I was actually, I'm not going to mention who it is, but I just talking to a guy in Hawaii and, and they weren't getting any ahi bites. And I said, okay, this is what you need to just tie it direct to your rod straight 80 pounder 130 and run it like that with no leader nothing and they're like you're crazy you need 300 400 pound leader i'm like trust me just do it and they catch an ahi and it's like they go we didn't think we could get them like sure you can't pull on it with your hands but you can fingertip it at the end and still put a gaff in it or you can wind it right to the rod tip and gaff it you just have to think differently and fight it differently and um you can put, I mean, you could literally catch a grander on straight 80 pound. You don't even need leader. If he doesn't hit his bill, it's in the right spot. You, you can put so much pressure, it blows your mind. So you can do whatever. Like you're saying to realize what you can pull off. But you also accept that a lot of bad things can happen too. Oh, oh yeah. You have to be willing to take that. The, that loss and stride like like you were saying about being able to catch a great grand or an 80 pound that's true until you factor in the chafe factor that's the one oh well, it's the chafe factor you're cooked but it has to be hooked in the perfect spot well, and, he, right. and he can't turn around he's got to stay on this one side the whole time <laughs> pretty much right yeah but, but i mean i've had granders you know cut through seven 700 pound i've even had 700 pound break on the bite and they're jumping because it they, they crimp it in the corner of their mouth and they don't even have teeth and they break it. So, uh, you know, I, there's same. a million ways you can lose fish, you know, so you just got to go along. I mean, I got so many stupid stories of losing millions of dollars in Mexico that, you know, people, if I, I mean, we'll go back to maybe some tournament stories sometimes, but people will be like, that is so full of crap. There's no way that happened. But when you're out there every day, you see stuff that no just nature's gnarly. No, I believe you, dude. That's just how it. That's just how it is, man. It's like I always say this. I always say that pretty much every fisherman I know could write a write a book. It's just 
They just have to make the, uh, the effort to do so. Pretty much every fisherman I've ever met is worthy of writing a book. And I recommend that they do because that's just what happens. When you put time out at sea and you're in this kind of traveling or just even in any kind of fishing life where you've got this balance between the ocean and land, crazy shit happens all the time. It just yeah, it's so it's so cool. I love it. And I think that, you know, I haven't got a copy of your book because there's no mail coming into Fiji yet. But um, if you could send a drone down with a copy, I'd be super stoked. But well, you could buy um, you could buy the Kindle version right now online. Oh, there you go. I'm going to Kindle. <laughs> I don't have a Kindle, but I'll figure it out. Can I watch it on my iPhone? I mean, read it on my iPhone. That's a great question. You'd have to ask somebody more techie than me on that one. <laughs> I'll do that in a heartbeat, bro. That's going to be super fun. And yeah, if I just knew how to write, but no one could read my writing. I don't know how to spell very good. I'm pretty, I'm pretty bad at all that stuff, but. <laughs> well, my advice with, and my advice on that is I am not a traditional writer by any means. Like I only got into writing like several years ago uh, from, you know, I, 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 you've probably seen some of my posts, but like I got into writing, like struggling from my divorce. And, um, you know, so I, you don't have to be the best technical writer if you've got the story, because there's editors available, like editors aren't hard to find. You just need to get the story on paper and then it's, you can get it cleaned up. But the most important part, I mean, I, I, I love just reading your Instagram posts. I mean, man, you get, you get deep in some of them. I can't even understand half. Well, that's the trick. I try to make them so no one can understand them so they think they're deeper than they are. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So good. Epic. Epic, man. Hey, that that kid on the back of your boat that you were showing, is that your kid? Yeah, yeah, that's that's Canyon. That's my eldest one. I I started doing this... uh, I guess I'm I'm kind of joining late to the whole YouTube thing. We started trying to film some videos, and uh, I'm going to do some different content. So I was filming a video yesterday of showing how to tie a, a knotless bimini, and <laughs> I, w- I was trying to do it with my son and trying to incorporate the family. And well, yeah, that was <laughs> so funny. He's like, "I'm just going to start breaking it or something." It was so good. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I love sharing it with the family, too. I mean, when Brees is here, um, you know, she'll come down here and back on the world surfing tour and we get to surf a lot. But she's also a really good fisherman. I mean, she she's really good at catching the shallow water snappers. And it's just a fun time to, you know, be in nature besides surfing and fishing gives you that opportunity. And I think we're really lucky when we get to, to do that with our families. It's pretty special. Hey, let me ask you, because I get a lot of inquiries on my site about uh, fly fishing. Would you recommend your uh, your resort for people who want to specifically come to fly fish? You know, it's not really a fly fishing destination. I mean, I definitely have been getting some nice GTs and trigger fish and bluefin trevally and other little stuff. But we're not really set up for it. We don't really have a flats boat yet, but I'm going to make one. And I think within the next year, when the world opens up, we'll definitely be ready for it. And it would be something very fun to do. It's probably will never be like a Christmas Island. I take groups to Christmas Island still six times a year. And also to Northern Australia and all over the world. That's kind of my specialty. But um, 
you know, Fiji is a fly fishing destination. Probably not. I would say it's going to be more of the the spin rod popper guys, GT guys, jigging, um, tuna, you know, more of that kind of semi-pelagic inshores kind of the game here. But it's still fun. I mean, fly fishermen just like to be out there doing it. And, I, and there is some insane flats here, and it is beautiful. Um, that's just kind of not not really our program, but it would still be epic. Uh, are you are your tuna schools close enough where you could get a guy to cast a fly into them? It's a lot of times the tuna schools when they're here, the bait ball goes under the boat and the ahis actually are hitting their head. I'm not kidding. We have video of it. They're hitting the head, their heads on the boat. They're going boom, boom. And the gunnels are shaking. It's insane. So if you can't cast six feet, you probably shouldn't be there anyways. <laughs> Well, we should be careful about saying that because I've worked on I've worked on a bunch of fly fishing marlin charters and raised the fish, and that six feet seemed to beat several people spending spending a lot of money. <laughs> I know it's classic. <laughs> Righty, they're coming. All right, thanks, bro. Yo, that's oh no, I've seen it too. Or they throw it up around the outrigger and hook the captain in the ear and then rip his face off, and dude, it's like. But that's fly fishing, and if and if you're you can't expect anything in fly fishing except just to be in the moment and just laugh when everyone all shit goes wrong because that's fly fishing. You're gonna get knots and tangles, and the flies are gonna get stuck in the gunnel. It's gonna go in the exhaust pipe. It's gonna go in the outriggers. It's gonna... you know, it's just like it's just mayhem. But it was more than 99%, but 99% of the time, fly fishermen realize it's probably not going to work out, and that's why I'm <laughs> fishing, right? It's like, you can't give a crap. If you wanted to catch that fish, you shouldn't be fly fishing. You're fly fishing to, to make it as hard as possible and do something completely silly, and that's why I love it. I've caught enough fish for 5,000 lifetimes. I like fly fishing because I'm probably going to screw it up, and laugh and I don't even care, but it's really fun to try something different and just expand your horizons of how to look at fishing and, um, and not catch anything. And sometimes you do. Yeah. Well, no, I agree. I mean, you're fly fishing because it's a challenge, right? If it, yeah. you were just meat fishing, you'd handle it completely different. So yeah, I, I get people on my boat, on my flats boat in Hawaii, um, my, my head guide, Kenny, he's a legend. He took over the Hawaii on the fly, and he's still guiding there. He's such a good dude, and I met him deer hunting, but no one's as, as good as I was him. And, and he'd get frustrated at the beginning because he really wanted to catch everyone because he was a hunter, and he was a commercial guide. I'm like, bro, it's fly fishing. It's not like we're stuck on a deserted island, and if you didn't catch that fish, we we're going to starve. I'm like... We got Teddy's burger five minutes away. We can get a burger. Who cares if we don't catch that fish? And once you get that into your head, then fly fishing's okay. That that's that's a good way of putting it. Um, <laughs> did, did, I, I'm trying to remember. You took out my buddy Casey years ago, didn't you? You remember? Man, I I don't remember who I took yesterday, but I'm sure Casey was a good dude. Oh, because he didn't say that about you at all. That's why I was going with his story. Um, Let, Bring it up. Let, no, no, I'm just up. kidding, dude. I'm totally just kidding. I'm totally just kidding. He, no, my buddy Casey loves fishing with you. Uh, that, that, I, I, I was, I, I know he fished with your organization. I was pretty sure it was with you. Big guy from New Hampshire. Seriously, dude. I, I mean, I, I took 700 people 
in a year, I don't remember anything. And so it's just a blur when you're guiding 300 days a year. No, I get it. Pushed. But if nope. I saw a picture of him with the fish and where I was, I would instantly remember it. It's just hard. But I'm sure we had a good time. I mean, our whole deal in Hawaii with the Hawaii on the fly thing was just to have fun and not stress out and laugh about it and learn a lot and, you know, switch lines, switch flies, switch leaders. People bring all kinds of silly stuff and, and they spend a lot of money on it. We don't use any of it. We use our stuff because when you live somewhere and, and you're in a fishery, you're probably going to have the right stuff. So it, it gets, it's just really a classic fishery and it's very frustrating. It's big fish. They're really smart. You'll get skunked you know, quite a lot. And people at the end of each day go, man, I've never not caught a fish, fish in my life by far. Cause they're just tripping. They're shaking. Their knees are shaking. They can't talk. They're shitting themselves. It's that fun. That's, that's what it's all about, man. Really. I think sometimes people lose that. And I know I've personally, I I've filled in and worked on some boats where people have lost the point that fishing ultimately is also supposed to be a good time. And those are the most uncomfortable boats to be on. Yeah, you don't want that guy saying, where's the fish? It's like no one in the world wants to catch fish more than your deckhand and your captain. Like they're bleeding. Their souls are bleeding. They're selling their soul to the devil every minute on every day of that boat. They just can't affect nature sometimes. And, you know, the good guys can pull a rabbit out of their hat and everyone gets lucky. But you can't be going to... Dude, I'm going to punch you in the dick if you say that again. It's like, why would I be here if this isn't a good spot? What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the old dick punch. Yes. (laughs) Let me ask you some questions here, my friend. uh, I've got kind of a round of quick fire questions, but the first one I'm going to ask you, and then after that, I promise they'll be quick. Yeah. Uh, The first one I'm going to ask you, and I know it's not going to be that quick of a story, but I'm still going to ask you. Tell us the story about the biggest fish you ever caught. Oh, right. Okay. Well, that was on a boat that you know too well. It's in, I think, Kona right now. Maggie Joe, right? I think it's here, yep. Yeah. Are you on in Kona or are you on Oahu right now? I'm in Kona, yep. I've got my kids this week. I'm, uh, I'm, uh, I'm Captain K, the dad, this week. So I'm Sick. here to... Well, Maggie Joe is is an amazing boat. It's a 53-foot Hoquiam Boatworks built in Seattle, brought over in the early 70s by the Durego's, which are one of the original kind of fishing families that go back forever. They're all totally insane, and I love them all. Uh, Mike Durego is still fishing in Kona, and uh, he's awesome. He brought me in and taught me a ton of stuff in Hawaii and kind of let me be the little Halley boy that could – I think I was like the first Hallie to run his boat in the world or something. It was crazy, but I was only like quite young, but, and then I went to Costa Rica after he trained me and I started fishing down there, but I came back cause my daughter came back to Hawaii cause my daughter was getting time for school. And Durego says, Mike, you know, you're back to Hawaii. Why don't you run Maggie Joe a few days a week while you're getting your bonefish thing going? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. I, I love Marlon fishing part-time now, but I can't do it every day anymore. And um, so 2009, um, it was September, and there was some, like, um, mahis and 40-pound shibis out on HH buoy, which is I think it's 17 miles off of Honolulu, 
you know what it is? It doesn't really matter. But... I don't know. And honestly, the, the, the buoy system is in such bad shape since you left. I would be surprised if it's even in place right now. Oh, that sucks because those buoys were awesome back then. Of course, it needed the right current. But um, Durego was neat because everyone else in the fleet kind of had to leave. They all had this thing where they left at 7 where I could leave whenever I wanted. So I always leave early and get to the buoys, which, you know, is crucial. You needed to be there. And back then, it seemed like there wasn't so many mosquitoes in the little boats back then. So I got to the buoy. There's no one there. And my deckhand, Nate, is this big corn-fed dude from, like, Ohio or something. He was a, just a strong kid, like a big, big dude. You wouldn't want to get a punch from him, dude. He'd knock your head off. And, and uh, we'd caught, for the, for the charter, we caught these six big mahi-mahi between 20 and 60 pounds. And it, it was scary. We had this big, you know, slurry box, and we could barely get them in there, and it's just shit's flying everywhere. And, and it's kind of rough, so the people are like, hey, Mike, you know, we caught a lot of fish. Can we go home now? And I'm like, yeah, it was only like 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, sure, I'll go in early. I'm going to go surfing. So Nate's like, well, what, what should we put out for the ride home? I'm like, you know what, Nate? I don't care what you put out. These guys want to go home. Just put something huge on the short corner and the rest I don't care about. You know, maybe we'll get a marlin, but I don't even care what you put out. I just want something big. So he holds up this big black, uh, I think it was called a papa. Jeez, I feel bad. It's one of Marlin Magic's big, oh, it's a pear, the papa pear or something like this. This is giant black uh, Kona head um black um vinyl skirts with a couple pink ones inside and he puts that out we're maybe not you know he's still he just put second place it's like 30 feet behind the boat and i'm i'm going like nine knots so the lure's barely staying in the water it's just going and we didn't really care at that point because he's still not you know cleaning up the boat icing the fish he hasn't even gone in to get the other lures yet off the counter and I'm upstairs, and it's a big boat, 53-footer, and I hear this, and I'm like, what the? And I turn around, and there's just like, seriously, a 30-foot hole in the water right behind the transom. And I'm like, the frick did a whale just come up? And Nate comes around, like, yeah, and he's like, holy shit, man. The bill looked like it's bigger than a baseball bat. I'm like, what do you mean? And the rod's just sitting there bent, but there's no line going off the reel. And I'm like... That's crazy. What, what, what is it? He goes, it's a freaking huge marlin, dude. And I go, well, why isn't it doing anything? And I'm still going nine knots, right? And I talk to him, and this freaking marlin is lit up, and it's swimming with this lure in his mouth, going the same speed I am swimming with us and not doing anything. It's just swimming with us at nine knots with the lure in his mouth. And I'm like, holy crap, look at that size of that thing. And it's not taking line. It's just sitting there, right? And I go, okay, someone get in the chairs. This guy, uh, Melvin, he's from Seattle, big guy, older guy. I go, Melvin, you want to fight a marlin? He goes, yeah. I go, hey, you ever fought him? Dude, this is how long this took before this fish even did anything. This is like minutes, dude. He's like, no, I, I, I caught a salmon once. I'm like, all right, well, get in the chair. Do you, can you handle a marlin? Yeah, yeah. He's pretty tough, dude. And then I go, Nate. I think this could be the fish that you've been waiting for. Are you are you willing to die for this fish, Nate? And he goes, I'm ready to die. I said, okay, put your gloves on right now. We're going to grab the... He's like, what? I go, just put your freaking gloves on. 
And I go, okay, everyone, this is how this works. On a big fish, we're going to get them in 30 minutes or it's going to be eight hours. Are you guys ready for war? And they're like, let's do it. So we all got ready. And I said, okay, the only way we're going to hurt a big fish is grab the leader. Because when it's on the rod, you're not really hurting it. So, Nate, you're going to grab the leader as much as you can. He's like, all right. So I just threw it in reverse and went right to the fish, dude. And then the thing just, I think he touched the leader barely. And the thing went. And it jumped like a 300-pounder. It must have jumped 60 times. And it turned around. It came around down the side of the boat. Maggie Joe does not go forward very fast, but it goes backwards really fast. This fish is coming at us, dude, at like 40 miles an hour, doing 20-foot jumps like it's a little fish, and it's freaking huge. And I go, oh, my God, it's going to jump through the cabin window. It's coming mid-cabin. Mid so I punch it. Maggie Jo just sits in the water, black smoke everywhere. She's not moving, dude, and this thing's coming at us full speed. And everyone's like, holy shit, we're going to die. <laughs> and then I see the boat just starts going. The thing clears the back corner and it's looking at Melvin in the fighting chair, dude. Swear to God, this was all like slow motion. As it's jumping over the corner of the boat, its eyeballs looking at the dude in the chair and it knows it's like connected to the dude. And the guy's like, Oh my gosh, Mike, it was looking at me. It lands in the water, takes off towards the starboard side. And now there's like 500 yards of line. Everywhere, right? And, uh, and usually in a marlinfish, you want to keep line tight, but I'm not really a believer in that. I'm more of a believer of keeping the fish close. So I spin the ass around of Maggie Joe, and I just start following the fish with away from us now. And I'm just driving on her tail, and we got 500 yards of line going off the front of the boat, just way out there. It's just no no connection at all. And Nate's like. What are you doing? I'm like, just tell Melvin to guide the line and wind up the slack. And if we come tight, we're going to be on the leader. And he's like, this is crazy. The line's on the front of the boat. I'm like, shut up and keep reeling. And I just went, Rah! and I'm back into eight foot swells. There's 30,000 gallons of water on the back deck. We had coolers floating in the ocean. We lost the cushions. All the knives were gone. Everything was just gone. We shut the cabin doors because the boat was just totally underwater. And I'm just going, stay on her tail and like now it's like uh this is eight minutes into the fight and we come tight and i'm like oh it's a miracle i didn't run the line over i go nate grab the leader and he just takes double and she does one kick of her tail dude and goes from the port side to the starboard side in like a millisecond and nate gets ripped off his feet slams his head in the other side of the boat knees are bleeding and he dumps the wrap so i'm like that was perfect nate we got to do that three or four times to hurt her and he's like well i'm already hurt i'm like sweet doing it. so i get back on her again she jumped one more time he grabbed the leader again but that time he could hold on but he couldn't turn her and i said you gotta dump it after a 45 degree angle so he did and i did it again we did it again and then at 35 minutes um, I said, Nate, you got to pull so hard this time because if she goes deep, we're going to be here forever. You're, you're not going to let go. We're either going to break it or you're going to, we're going to catch it. And he just took wraps. He spun her around. I put one engine in gear. We started going forward. He took one more wrap and then the, the leader half hitched on his arm. Oh no. Above his, above above his gloves. gloves. 
and he couldn't get it off because now his gloves are squished and his arms are stuck together and squishing and his arms are getting squished. So he just takes, starts taking double-handed, wrist-connected wraps, just going around in circles, winding up his arms, dude. Swear it was the scariest thing. He's like, he's like, Mike, I'm going to die. And I'm like, so I had gloves on. So now I got my feet on the rail of Maggie. Boat's going in autopilot, one engine forward. And I got gloves. On, and now I'm pulling, taking wraps. And he's just on the deck doing giant swirlies with his arms, taking up the slack that I'm pulling, right? And he's like, dude, you have to stick it right now. Because if it goes, I'm dead. And I'm like, I got you, Nate. And I'm pulling. And I go, flying gaff. And I'm and I put it in its head, and I couldn't get it in. Its head was so hard, I couldn't penetrate with the flyer. It was just going bong, bong. Freaking armor plating head. So I had to come around from the bottom, which I never do, and I had to stick it kind of in its belly behind its gill plates. And I got it in. And then, like, absolute miracle. And I, you know, these are all you know, guests and, you know, charters, they don't know anything. They've never even seen a Marlin. Instantly, these guys come flying over the top of me with, with our giant, you know, our nine-foot stick gas, and they crisscross his head with stick gas, like an absolute miracle, like tournament fisherman. I'm like, what the, how did you guys do that? They're like, we didn't want Nate to die, so we got him. I'm like, sick. So then Nate untangles himself. His arms are all just like red lines and squished, and he was all smashed, and his knees were bleeding. And then we got it. And um, the problem was Maggie just doesn't have a marlin boy. So we have to get this thing that's 17 feet long or whatever over the rail. We had block and tackle, and uh, it took us an hour and a half. It took us 40 minutes to catch it. It took us an hour and a half to get it in the boat. It was so big, we put it on block and tackle, and we had half pitches up his bill. We had his mouth shut. We had a flyer in its head, and we were bringing it over the rail. Um, it was so big that when it got up onto the rail, it started cracking, and its head started separating from its body. It was too heavy. Like, its body went out so far that it couldn't support its own weight. So we had to throw it back in the water and then pull it in tail first. And that took an hour and a half and uh, it was pretty hardcore. And I know everyone's like, I got so much flack for that fish. Like, why do you kill such a big fish and blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, it was, uh, you kind of, in fishing, you kind of play the hand of God sometimes. And I've been fishing for that fish my whole life. And it was time for her to come home. But if I caught any more like that, I would definitely let them go. And I probably have caught about, uh, you know, you can't tell, say it's a grander unless you catch them, but kill them. But probably six to ten of them in Costa Rica between blacks and blues that were close to that big. But that was the one that needed to come home. And, and she did. And it was an epic fish. And what did the final weigh? What did it finally weigh? Uh, it was 1,245 pounds. And um, and we lost everything in her belly because when I stuck her in the belly, there was trigger fish and mahis and tunas spilling out. So it was pretty sad. But I, when they're that big, you can't do anything. I mean, you, you couldn't even hold her there. So it was just a bummer. But ended up weighing 12.45 on the certified scale back at the dock. So it was a good that's, fish. That's a monster. No shame in that. No, I was super stoked. and And I think the... Another article just came out not too long ago about UH 
reprinted that fish because they came down and they did a study on the ovalith, which is the inner ear bone. And I think they said it was 28 years old or something and that it stopped reproducing at 18 years old and that, you know, it was okay to take that one out of the food chain at that point. It already given its genes to the world and try to make me feel better, I guess, (laughs) you know, sometimes you make calls on fish and that was my fish. Awesome. Well, congratulations. That's a hell of a fish, man. That is a dream fish. No shame in that. I would most likely try and stick it if the scenario was right myself. So awesome fish. Good going. Yeah. What a great, what a great telling of the story too. Uh, that That's what I mean, man. Just every fisherman I know could write a book. Um, what is one thing that you wish you had known about this business before you got into it that you didn't? Oh, I'd say nothing. I kind of came. That's all I've done since I was 14 years old. So I don't know anything else. The only thing I could say is knowing about fisheries better. You know, sometimes you'll be in a fishery for four years and then you'll discover something and you go, man, I just did four years of that and didn't even realize that that you could be doing that thing. And that kind of freaks me out because you feel like you wasted four years, but um, so definitely talking to your, your buddies and sharing information. I think information is king, um, for people that wear it, well, share it with you. There's some things that you got to hold tight and can't show your cards because that's your livelihood. But if people share info, I think that's really cool. And you'd be surprised that, you know, even some of the gnarliest, scariest local captains in Hawaii, um, you know, if you're mellow and cool, they'll even share stuff with you that's top secret as long as you kind of, you know, keep it on the I always wish I had more information. That's about the only thing. Very good. What is the biggest myth about this business you want to debunk right now? Um, okay, so I used to charge $1,400 a day in Costa Rica for my charters. And everyone's like, gosh, and you're chartered 200 days a year. That's like a lot, a lot, a lot of money. And so these German guys bought bought me a, a new boat every two years. They were the most epic guys to work with. And, and German guys like their business, right? And so I said, okay, this is the deal, guys. I want you to sign this contract that says we're going to win tournaments. We're going to have a shitload of, load of fun. It's going to be insane. You're going to have your own boat, and I'm going to be running it and know where the fish are you're going to lose your ass. And they're like, what do you mean? How can you lose your ass? You're making, you know, $500,000 a year. I said, you don't make money in sport. You blow a tranny, you blow a transducer. There's things going wrong in the saltwater all the time. At the end of the year, if you make zero, we're winning. And so I think the biggest misconception is that there's a lot of money in it. And sure, there's guys making a living at it, but um, it's more of a uh you know you're doing it for a lifestyle not making a good living i think that's the main thing very good favorite place in the world to fish um wherever i am i don't care if it's a one inch golden trout in the high sierras or i'm catching granders i just need to be on the water it makes my head feel good i don't even care if they're not biting awesome great answer favorite whiskey uh, um, Tito's vodka. Tito's vodka. That's not a whiskey. 
<laughs> I'm not a whiskey guy, really. I'm a rum guy and a vodka guy. You don't drink any whiskey. I drink whiskey when I'm on my, you know, week trips out in the outback with crazy guys and we're having a cigar after an epic day of fishing. Someone will bring out some whiskey, but I can't say that um, I'm a whiskey guy, but I do like it. Fair enough. Fair enough. So what's your favorite whiskey? Because I need to be getting on the right one. Well, that's a great question, my friend. Uh, my favorite whiskey is the first one who wants to sponsor this podcast. But um, <laughs> no, in all seriousness, I feel like there's a lot of different whiskeys for different scenarios. Uh, if that makes sense. When I was younger, I drank lots and lots of Crown Royal. So like a rye whiskey. Yeah, but, that's my dad's drink. Is it? Yeah, he's been a crown dude forever and ever. It's so funny. I have I have all my reels are still in the purple bags. Oh, there you go. The purple pill, as I call it. The uh, the magic yeah. pill. Um, so I still like to drink crown. Um, I, I'm a little bit of a purist on that, though. I'm not quite as crazy into all these different infused flavors they've done. That To me, that was to try and get kids and women to drink it. But you can't infuse anything. Infused anything like they like coconut or macadana flavored cigars forget that i want it legit yeah uh today uh you know what i drink a lot of i drink a lot of jack daniels it's not the fanciest whiskey but i can find it regularly and uh eh, i don't know your taste buds just change or whatever i don't know jack on the rocks or jack neat just just hits me in the right spot I'm, i i like jack that's I, awesome and, yeah. and it, is there is jack lucky when you're fishing or is that just on land well, it's interesting you'd say that. So, like, commercial fishing and everything, I don't drink at all. Like, Seahab, uh, if you will, that's kind of the thing that's kept my life together is the fact that I don't drink when I'm out at sea, honestly. Yeah, you know? we don't either. Plus, too many things can go wrong. I mean, even when you're sober, you get a hook through your hand. So, you'd be totally useless having some drinks out there. Yeah, I'll tell you, there's only one scenario where – or well, there's two scenarios I can think of where I've ever drank. And – uh one is at the end of the day on the Great Barrier Reef with a client, like behind the reef. I've had a few cocktails. Yeah, um, that'd be sick. Catching, yep. you know, the, the inch, catching bait there is just as good as catching the marlin. That the Great Barrier Reef is such an awesome fishery. I, I I tell everybody that if you have enough money in your bank account and you fancy yourself a fisherman, and you have enough money in your bank account to have fished the Great Barrier Reef and you didn't, your life is wasted. I love the Great Barrier Reef. <laughs> I mean, seriously, I mean, you can't take it with you. If it's like everybody, if you value yourself as a fisherman, needs to get on a charter on the Great Barrier Reef during heavy tackle season and just do the full experience and really see that place because there's just nothing like it when it's happening. It's such an incredible spot. Yeah, I've fished a lot over there. I haven't done the reef, but I know that the – the inshore fishing catch and bait like is, is a dream for the spin rod guys. And a lot of people sleep through that part, go with the crew and catch all the Spaniards and the, and the scaly mackerels and all the other stuff. I mean, you get GTs and you get Wahoos there on stick baits and like 20 feet away. Place is insane. It's totally nuts. Totally nuts. It's, it's an awesome, awesome. But I agree spot. having a drink at the end of the day or, you know, and when we fish all the tournaments, we will have a couple of uh, those Jack and soda drinks that come in the can now for the ride home. And especially when we had a good day and we might be in the money, we definitely start early. But yep. um, yeah, I think it's a little dangerous when, when you're actually. Yeah. 
Com- commercial <laughs> fishing, commercial fishing, and then like a charter you don't know. Like, uh, but yeah, yeah. So my other scenario where I'll drink on a boat is during tournaments, like when we're with people that know that know the program. You know, like because some of the people we drink with are like on the boats. They're convinced that the luck is derived with everybody having a good time, and so. A lot of times I've, I've fished with a bunch of people. Like if you haven't got a bite by say like three o'clock and it's going in the last hour. You gotta yeah. Everyone has to have one for sure. Yeah. And yeah, so, right. yeah, but yeah, I've never, right. I've never been the uh, drink all day at work guy. Honestly, the sea have is what's always kind of kept me alive. Yeah. That's awesome. But Hey man, I got to go. Cause I'm actually going fishing right now. We're going to go hit the inside of the reef for, um, Go throw some poppers and also fly fish switch, depending on what's going on with the light. But awesome. my buddy's out front right now, and he's been yelling at me for the last 20 minutes. But okay. uh, great talking to you. Yeah, great know, talking to you. Here. What's, yeah, man. Awesome having you here. Let's, uh, we'll, we'll get you back on the show again. So uh, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate your time. All right. I'll, t- I'll tell my Bisbee story next time. It's the funniest thing you'll ever hear. And uh, have a good one. Love to everyone in Hawaii. All right, buddy. Aloha. Aloha.